We're finally out of Matthew chapter 8 and uh, starting a new chapter, so that's kind of exciting. <clears throat> we got several to go yet, so don't get it too impatient with me. But uh, last week we talked about a message that was titled, Solve Our Problems But Save Our Pigs, and it dealt with the demoniacs at the end of chapter 8. And uh, we looked at how Jesus has the power over um, those forces. And I just want to read for us uh, our text this morning, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And you can follow along in your Bibles. <clears throat> Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, and, and at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled or feared and glorified God who had given such power to men. One phrase I want you to focus in on as we read through that is there in verse 2 when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. That's the key to this whole passage. We've looked at Jesus' power over nature. We looked at Jesus' power over the supernatural. Um, but there's nothing as powerful as what we're going to see today. This phrase, your sins be forgiven, it really shows that Jesus has the authority and the power to forgive sin. It's the one message in our Christian faith that makes it different than all others. That our sins can be forgiven. That we don't have to work to forgive them. <laughs> we don't have to do things to earn God's favor. That it's on the behalf of Christ that our sins, whatever they may be, as deep and as dark and as vile and as hideous and as evil as they may be, the passage this morning tells us clearly that our sins can be forgiven. Up to this time, we've kind of seen the strategy of Matthew as we've kind of perused through Matthew these previous eight chapters. And what Matthew's doing is he's presenting, first of all, the identity of Christ. He's presenting the identity of Christ. He's focused on all these different miracles that the Lord has performed in, in verse, or chapters 8 and then now in chapter 9. And they're really intended there to present the deity of Christ, to present Christ as someone other than just another guy. They're there to present the deity of Christ. And also, they're there to present his role as the Messiah in Israel. Matthew records a series of miracles not only to prove that Jesus is God. That's not his only purpose. Remember, Matthew is, is writing to a largely Jewish audience. 
And he wants them to understand that the Son of God is the Messiah. And how would you do that if you were talking to someone of the Jewish faith? You would go back to the Old Testament and you would find prophecies that had been fulfilled about Jesus. And you would show them those prophecies. That's what Matthew is doing. He presents to us not only the deity of Christ, but a Christ that fulfills all the prophecies that were foretold about the Messiah himself. He wanted Israel to know that he was the Messiah. That's what Jesus wanted them to know. And that he would introduce the kingdom of God to the world. That was his purpose. And so, for that reason, there's an Old Testament character. Kind of an Old Testament flavor to some of the miracles. These miracles just aren't random that Matthew records here. He just didn't say, oh, that was a good one, I'll write that down. No, he he does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And each miracle that's recorded in this gospel is there not only to show the deity of Christ, but also to show Christ as the Messiah, to show him as the one who has fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. But it also presents to us not just the identity of Christ, but it also presents to us the ability of Jesus. We see over and over again in Matthews 8 and 9, first of all, his ability over the, the, his power over the physical realm. Remember the first miracle of the second set. These are three sets of miracles of three. Remember, we, we talked about this. And the first miracle of the second set of three was Jesus, what did he do? In the, in the midst of a raging storm, stood up in the boat after they woke him up and went, hush, and, the, the, and everything was just silent. The wind stopped. The lake was calm. Amazing power. And it fulfilled Old Testament prophecies that actually predicted. See, this is what you have to understand. That wasn't just a random miracle. There's Old Testament prophecies that actually predicted that Jesus, the Messiah, would set up a kingdom and overpower the curse of the physical world. And he was just giving them a glimpse that he has that power. That one day, ultimately, that will be fulfilled. And there's different verses you can write it down. Isaiah 30, verses 23 to 24 talk about how there'll be an abundance of rain and crops will flourish in the ways that never known before the fall. Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 7 talks about the desert uh, blossoming like a rose. I mean, it's amazing. And there's other physical restorations that we've seen and throughout our Bible conferences, prophecy conferences and everything that that we've, we've heard. And so he had power over the physical realm. He also had power over the supernatural realm. We saw that last last week when basically he cast out those demons. Amazing. Um, And in Zechariah and in Daniel and other places, it it says basically that, that the Messiah will have the power to do that. And so he's fulfilling those prophecies. And also here today we see... The Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah is going to have to have a power over the spiritual realm as well. That the Messiah will be marked by forgiveness. And we saw that last week as we read in Isaiah and in Ezekiel 36. You can see that in Isaiah 33, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 44. And here also in Matthew chapter 9, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, is able to forgive sin. What a glorious truth. What an incredible thing. 
And it's just given us a picture that one day Christ will come and he'll establish his kingdom on earth. And it will last throughout all eternity. And so these aren't just random miracles. They have a purpose, not only to show the deity of Christ, but also to show the nature of the Messiah, to show that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Well, let's talk about the scene of this miracle here this morning that we see in verses 1 through 8. Um, it says there in verse 1 that he entered into a boat and passed over and came, what's it say, to his own city. Now, you might say, well, that must be Nazareth. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> Well, wasn't Nazareth Jesus' city? Well, it was at the beginning. (laughs) But some things changed. Now, we don't know how much time really elapsed here between this, this, you know, the casting out of the demons and at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. The Bible doesn't tell us. just doesn't tell us. Because Matthew is not really concerned about the chronology of events here as using, he's more concerned about using specific miracles to present Jesus as Messiah. That's why all the Gospels are different. When you read the different accounts, they're different because they're, they're, they're presenting it from their own personality, from their own religious upbringing and everything. And they're still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they're all not the same because they're giving a different perspective. But first of all, we look at the city here. And having healed these demon-possessed men on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus now returned in the boat and came to his own city. And like I said, that's not the city of Nazareth. Nazareth, in in and if you turn back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 and 15, you remember when we went over this, Matthew 4, verses 13 and 15, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt where? In Capernaum, right? Which is by the sea. Okay? And so, actually, <clears throat> he left Nazareth. And he dwelt by the sea, and that was actually also a prophecy that was fulfilled, uh, that was foretold in in the book of Isaiah. Um, And in Luke chapter 4, it tells us the reason he left Nazareth is because they threw him out. His own people threw him out of his city, out of his own country, because a prophet is not without honor, it says, in his own uh, country. And so he reestablished his home several miles away in this little seaside town of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Lake of Galilee. And uh, he probably took residence up there. We don't, the Bible doesn't say he had a house there himself, but he probably uh, took residence up there in the house of Peter, um, which tells us in Matthew 8, 14, where Peter's uh, mother-in-law was healed. Well, you have to remember, all these people are following Christ because of his healing ability, all right? So we're talking about the city of Capernaum. We're talking about crowds of people, hordes of people following him wherever he went. And he came back to his, this house in Capernaum that he was staying at, and it was no different there. There was just crowds of people pressed in. Now, it's interesting that it says there that they were basically in a house, and I actually have some uh, pictures of that house. Uh, go ahead and put it up there. This is just like a plaque, and this is when we were over in Israel. And uh, it says, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. And it was the house of Simon Peter, and there was also a synagogue there. Go ahead and go to the next shot. This is act- the actual house. It's amazing. What you see when you go over, this is the actual house that they believe that Peter lived in. And so Jesus 
visited. And this is probably the actual ruins of where this event happened. It's still there. Just amazing. Next picture. Another picture there. And obviously, you say, well, what happened to it? Well, over time, it actually, the walls fell, fell in and things like that. So this is being preserved. You can't walk around there or anything. They have fences around it and everything. But uh, archaeologists really believe that this is what it was. And these houses, they were made of, of stone like that and mud, and they would come up, and usually they were two stories, and they'd have a flat roof on top. And on top of the flat roof, they would have a um, uh, outside staircase to lead up to that. And so usually what they'd have on the first floor is the kitchen and whatnot, things like that. The second floor would be a place, kind of a giant room, where they would sit around and they would eat and gather. And then on the roof, they would have the opportunity to go up there as well. Okay? And so that's how the houses were constructed. Go to the next picture there. I don't know what. This is the actual synagogue that was uh, that's built upon the, the remains there. And uh, go to the next one. This is just kind of a grinding stone that was there. Okay? So all these pictures, they kind of showed us uh, when we were over there that, hey, this, was, this is a real place. This isn't a fairy tale. That the Bible is, is very real. And so when we, we look at this, the parallel accounts in Mark 2 and Luke 5, you have to read those as well if you're going to read Matthew 9, okay? It's important to understand that Jesus had gone into the house, probably Peter's house here, and probably he went upstairs to the second floor because that's where you would go if you were going to um, have a, a gathering of people, whether you were going to eat or even teach or whatever. And so that's how the houses were uh, constructed. And... Uh, on, on top of the, of the house, I said, there was, it's kind of a, a flat roof, a tile roof or a mud roof, something like that. Um, and it's just interesting to understand that because once we get into this, you're going to see why that's important, that kind of an interesting uh, kind of a foundation, a, a background uh, information. Well, there's six words I want to share with you this morning that deal with this passage. The first one is faith. The first one is faith. Okay, we're basically going to be talking about forgiveness this morning. And we're going to be talking about Christ's power to forgive. But the first key word here is faith. Look at verse 2 in Matthew 9. It says, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. When Jesus saw their faith. Now, here in Matthew, it doesn't tell us who these people are. It just says, uh, they, uh, then they, they brought him a paralytic. It doesn't tell us who the A. There's no antecedent here for the they. We don't know who it is. So if you go over to Mark and you look, you understand that there's four individuals, probably family or friends of this guy who was paralyzed. And evidently, obviously, they cared about him. Obviously, they heard about Christ's healing ministry. They heard about what he's done before to people, how he's healed them, things like that. And, and this guy apparently was uh, pretty ill. He was paralyzed. And so he may have recruited them or they just maybe out of the kindness of their heart brought him to Christ. We don't know. But the purpose... The man needed to have someone bring him to Jesus because it says he was sick. One translation says of the palsy. Here it says he's a paralytic. It's a type of paralysis. He was probably a quadriplegic. 
to the point where he probably couldn't even speak because he never says anything. And it's, that's a horrible, horrible fate to be in. Today, it's horrible. Some of us have had an experience to, to be around a quadriplegic or to care for a quadriplegic, and it's heart-wrenching because you're literally dealing with someone who cannot do anything for themselves. Some of them even have breathing tubes that air is pumped into their lungs because they can't even breathe. But they are a living being and they deem to be cared for. And just because they may not have the quality of life that we do, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose for them. So important to understand that in the social environment we live in today. And so this guy, for whatever reason, it could have been a birth defect, it could have been muscular dystrophy, whatever, we don't know. But he was laid out and he couldn't move. And he was unable to even help those who, who carried him. You know, sometimes if somebody's injured or whatever, you know, if they're able to help you, then, you know, to, 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 to get them in the car, to physically move them, then that's, it's not so bad. But when someone is so laid out that they can't even literally move, you're carrying dead weight. That's why it took four of them. Okay. And so he has this... Uh, problem and uh, in biblical times back then it was even 10 times worse if you stop and think about it you didn't have the wheelchairs you didn't have all the ways to to deal with it you didn't have the ada all those people that want to help folks like this as a matter of fact back in that time it was you had the physical stigma of, of being paralyzed but you also had the social stigma See, back then they believed that, well, that person is that way because of their sin. They must have done something wrong. You remember in John chapter 9, verse 2, the disciples asked Jesus about this issue. He said, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember that? So that was the common day thinking. Hey, if you're sick, <laughs> what'd you do, bud? And there's some people today that still believe that. Now, the disciples were right in the sense that all sickness is linked to sin somehow. Because if there was no sin, would there be any sickness? No. But it's not always a direct result. Um, but that, that thinking goes all the way back to Job, which was one of the first books of the Bible ever penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And... You remember when Job was going through his problem, his friends came along and said, okay, what'd you do? <laughs> Must have done something wrong. Look at your situation. So the paralytic not only suffered from a physical disease, but he also had this stigma, this social stigma. And he basically was incapacitated. And he probably had an overwhelming sense that he was sinful. That he was sinful. And therefore, directly responsible for his illness. Now, it's important that we understand that it's, it's not uncommon for such people to seek to be alone. People in that kind of a state don't like big crowds. They don't like to be 
the center of attention. They don't like to go where people are because of the social stigma. Okay? Um, We still deal with that today in our society. But back then, it was so much worse. And so usually, if you were that kind of a person, you you would never go to an event like Jesus was having here at this house. You just wouldn't show up because of the social stigma involved. That's why Jesus said in verse 2, look at what he says to him. He says, son, be of good cheer. See, evidently, the despair of his life was not only that he needed physical healing, but that he was sinful. Sickness isn't always directly related to sin. However, all sickness... I hope you'd agree, is a graphic demonstration of the destructive power that's at work in the world because of sin. So he was this walking illustration of sin. And whether or not this man understood how his sickness was related to his sin, we don't know. He did know that there was sin in his life. So he got the first step right. He knew that there was sin in his life and that it needed to be dealt with. And you look at the persistence of these guys. Uh, You know, what makes the faith that Jesus recognized in these men who brought the paralytic so great? I mean, you stop and think about it. They must have believed that Jesus could heal him or why would they have brought him, right? Right. Because it's a, it would be a, a hard thing to, you know, take somebody like that and put them in that environment just to hear another message. You wouldn't do that. You would never do that. That would be cruel to that person. But according to the counts in Mark and Luke, they came to the house where Jesus was. And the Bible says they couldn't get in with the paralytic because of all the people. <laughs> just packed house. And you saw the foundation there. It's not that big of a house. So you can imagine there was people just crammed in every corner, out even into the street probably, listening to what Jesus might say. So they decided that there's only one way to get this guy in there. I mean, they could have looked at that situation and said, ah, (laughs) let's go. Sorry. (laughs) Maybe we'll try it next time, next week or whatever. But they were persistent. So they decided to do the only thing they could do. They walked up the staircase, probably lined with people, took this paralytic up the staircase, went up on top of the roof, probably out of earshot of what was going on. That's why nobody was probably up there. Couldn't really hear anything if you're sitting on the roof. It'd be like sitting on the roof here. You know, you probably couldn't hear the message. So they went up there and they began to dig. (laughs) They were making some business for you, John. John owns a roofing company. He's praising the Lord right now for all the rain. (laughs) But they climbed up on the roof and they began to pull back the tiles and remove the tiles. And can you imagine? I mean, here's the Son of God upstairs in this house teaching. It's crammed full of people. People are probably, you know, leaning in to hear every word he said. And all of a sudden, stuff starts to fall from the ceiling. Little pieces of mud and plaster. And people think, what in the world is going on? 
Now, these guys must have somehow cased out the joint. They must have known where Jesus was going to be sitting. And they must have made some proper calculations because they dug the hole so they could lower this guy down apparently on some kind of pulley system or something. And they lowered him down right at the feet of Jesus who was teaching. I mean, can you imagine all of a sudden the roof starts opening up and some guy starts being lowered down on a pallet? You know, and he probably had kind of a, I kind of like to think of it as a futon, kind of a, a mattress put on some kind of a, a wooden frame that they could carry the guy around on. So they could put him on there and then, you know, when they had to move things, whatever, they either carry him and, or could just carry him on the pallet, just made it easier. But they dropped this guy right down straight in front of Jesus. I mean, think about it. They could have just looked at the crowd and said, ah, we're going home. Sorry, Charlie, maybe next time. No. They had this inventive, persistent faith. And even the paralytic had faith if we assume that he enlisted these four men to bring him to Jesus, which he probably did. We can't know that from what he said because he makes no request at all. That's why we believe that he was mute. his, His paralysis even covered his vocal cords. And so he laid at the feet of Jesus in full view of all these people gathered there. I mean, can you imagine what was going through his heart, what was going through his mind? He just interrupted a meeting. (laughs) I mean, would you feel comfortable if, you know, uh, I mean, just interrupting a meeting? No, none of us would. And then you add all the social stigma that this guy had because of his paralysis. He was probably full of grief and fear. But he knew that Jesus was the healer of bodies. And I'm also convinced that he must have hoped that he was the healer of hearts. Because that's where his real problem lie. The thing that probably burned in him the most was his sin. And he willingly exposed the ugliness of his social stigma and his sinfulness to the whole crowd. Right at the feet of Jesus. See, that's what we call true humility of a seeking heart. That's what we call somebody who's desperate for a touch from God. That's what we call somebody who is, has nowhere else to go. They're, they're just stuck in the mire and muck of their sin and they're going, I don't know what else to do. I have to go see Jesus. I have to go see the Son of God. And it's for that reason that Jesus looked at them and said, Wow, (laughs) you know, I'm going to recognize the faith of all five of you guys. This is amazing. That you had the faith to come down here, interrupt my meeting, expose yourself to this stigma. I mean, you're paralyzed, you can't walk. It was not an ordinary faith that they possessed. It was strong and it was persistent. Now, sometimes Jesus healed people with no faith at all. (laughs) You know that? The Bible gives us indications that that's what happens sometimes. Or very little faith. Totally healed. He was especially disposed, though, to heal people who had great faith. 
In Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, if you read just a couple verses down, it says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter had just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Man of great faith. And it says in verse 29, According to your faith, be it done unto you. at the end of the, the, uh, the chapter there. And so it's, it's kind of an important thing that Christ sometimes healed people with no faith, but he was kind of disposed to heal people who had some kind of faith, great faith. And look at what he says. He says, son, be of good cheer. He gives him a promise here. In other words, this guy is laying there. There's hush. There's complete silence in the room. People are in disbelief. They can't believe these guys just did this. And here's this poor soul laying there on the pallet. He can't even move or talk. And Jesus breaks the tension. He breaks the anxiety that was there. And he says, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. The New American Standard says, take courage. See, Jesus addressed the man as a child. He says, son or child, be of good cheer. He didn't respond, what are you doing? You know, you're interrupting my meeting here. No, he knew what was in his heart. And so he addressed him as a son or a child. He was a man who was just overwrought with his sin by social condemnation from without and probably guilt from within. Historians tell us that one cause of paralysis in that culture and in that day were a form of sexual, sexually transmitted diseases. So it's very possible that this individual lived a very illicit lifestyle. And as a result of his own lifestyle, he found himself paralyzed. And it could have been just that. We don't know. But believing that Jesus possessed the power of God, he was willing to put himself in the presence of a holy God and take his chances. In the midst of his fear, the Lord broke the silence and said, hey, you know what? Stop being afraid. Take courage. There's nothing to fear. See, the Lord here, he doesn't condemn the man. What's he do? He reaches out and he encourages him. He comforts him. Because he was fearfully conscious of his sickness and his sin. And that just shows us the tenderness of Christ. That just shows us the compassion of Christ. He can even love the sinner even though he's offended by his sin. I think the church today needs to learn from that. There's a lot of people out in the world who live horrible, illicit, sinful lifestyles. And our answer is, well, we have to hate them. You have people in the name of Christ carrying billboards. God hates fags. God hates homosexuals. God, all this stuff. And they're doing it in the name of Christ. Now, we don't condone that lifestyle. We don't condone the the murder of unborn babies. 
But we have to understand, we have to separate the sinner from the sin. God loves the sinner. That's why he says to this man, be a good cheer. That word, tharseo in the Greek, it refers to what we call a subjective courage. It's a subjective courage. There's a synonym to the, to the, the verb that's an objective courage. And the objective courage would be like me saying to you, you know what, just grit your teeth, hang on, and master your fear. Take care of it. But the word Jesus used was not that. He wasn't telling this guy, you know what, deal with it. What are you afraid of? That's not what he was saying. He was saying, child, what are you afraid of? There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. And you say, well, I don't understand the fear thing. Why, why is there so much emphasis on this fear? Let me tell you something. <laughs> There's plenty to fear. If you come before a holy God as a sinner without repentance. There's a whole lot to fear then. But there was nothing to fear when this paralytic came because, you know what, I really believe that he understood his sinful state. He understood who Christ was. And he wasn't there to be healed physically. That's not why he came. He wanted his sin dealt with. He was broken. He was contrite over his sin. That's the only way the Lord could forgive him. See, that's kind of a, a problem today. So many times we, we tell people, well, you, you just, you know, we, we cheapen the gospel to the point where it's, well, just pray this prayer, say these words, whatever. Welcome to the family of God. When there is no fear, there is no repentance, there's no thought of that. There's plenty to fear if you come before a holy God as a sinner without repentance. The Bible says that. But there was nothing to fear because he came as a broken and contrite man. It's important to understand the Lord doesn't forgive the sins of people who don't come that way. Do you understand that? If you come to God with a proud heart, and you're just going to add Jesus to your lifestyle and just kind of go about, live your life the way you lived it before and just add Jesus and you're claiming that God forgave you? No, he didn't. Because there's no brokenness in your life. It's not the one who tries to hide his sin who has nothing to fear. They have plenty to fear. But it's the one who is willing to reveal it so that it can be forgiven. They have nothing to fear. That's what Christ's point is here. And to this man who was shaken with grief, he was overcome with fear, he was burdened with guilt, the Lord responded in answer to his faith. And he said, be of good cheer. Don't, don't fear anything. I see your heart. And he says in verse 2, the second word, forgiveness. He says, your sins are forgiven you or your sins are dismissed. See, forgiveness is something that only God can do. It's a divine miracle that ranks up there with any other miracle. 
And it's something that Christ bestowed here instantaneously with a word. Talk about power. I mean, we may say we forgive somebody, but do we really? A lot of times we hold on to those things in our heart and we can bring them up anytime. Just talk to any couple, they'll tell you how it works. Christ forgave his sin with a word. And this paralytic had never said a word. Don't you, don't you think that's interesting? This guy never said anything to Jesus. He couldn't. He was probably paralyzed. His vocal cords were, vocal cords were paralyzed. How did the Lord know that forgiveness was what he wanted? Because the Lord knows the heart of everybody. He knows what's in your heart this morning. He read the heart of the paralytic and he read the hearts of the scribes, as we're going to see. See, and as a giver of all good, he gives before we can even articulate the request sometimes. Because he knows what we need before we even ask, the Bible says. In this case here of this paralyzed guy was no different. He read the man's heart and he forgave him. He dismissed his sins. This guy never said a word. See, that's the remission of sins that the Bible is talking about. It's such an important part of salvation. We have to understand that. It's an integral part of salvation. If we don't understand that there's sin, then why would we need to be saved? That's why it's so important that people understand that today the gospel has been brought down to a level where people are unwilling to use the word sin. Be just a quote out of this book. In other words, they're, they're unwilling to confront people. This is a quote from Joel Osteen on the Larry King show. Osteen said basically he's not sure what happens to people who reject Christ. Well, King followed up with the question about Jews, Muslims, and other non-Christians. And King said, well, they're wrong, aren't they, from your point of view? And Alstein replied, well, I don't know if I believe they're all wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches. And from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I see their sincerity. So I don't know. I know for me, it's what the Bible teaches. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. King gave me another opportunity to answer. And he kept coming back to this point. God's got to look at your heart. God's got to look at your heart. He wouldn't call it sin. Beloved... What does the Bible say about our hearts? They're wicked and desperately evil. So you want God to judge you basic by basically by looking at your heart? I don't think so. We're going to lose that fight every time. 
See, if we're unwilling to address the issue of sin in people's lives, if we're not willing to go to them and say, you know what? The Bible says that we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Joel Osteen says, well, I don't use the word sin because it condemns people. I don't, I don't like to use those terms. And so the gospel has been cheapened, has been watered down to where most gospel messages don't even talk about sin anymore. It's just how Jesus can make your family and pocketbook and everything else happy, happy, happy. Well, until you come to Christ with a broken heart, grieving over your sin, basically that's all you're going to get. You're not going to get eternal life, that's for sure. And so the remission of sins is what the Bible talks about. It's an important part of our salvation message. That's why the Bible says when the Lord sends our sins away, He sends them as far as the east is from the west, that He buries them in the depths of the sea, and He remembers them no more. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, the Apostle Paul says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious But I obtained mercy. And then he says this. This is a good, faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? To save who? To save good people? I don't think so. To save sinners. And then the Apostle Paul ends that verse and he says, Of whom I am chief. And sometimes we walk around with a stride in our step as believers thinking that, well, I wouldn't do that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to. I'd never do that sin. Who do we think we are? Sad. The Lord gave the greatest gift that dealt with this guy's greatest need, and it wasn't his physical healing. It was his sin. He wanted him to know that his sins were forgiven because he came with a contrite heart. That's the grace of God. That's what God does to people who come to him in desperate need of forgiveness. He forgives them. But if you come with a proud spirit, thinking God owes you anything, you'll receive nothing. A lot of times we sing about the grace of God. Last week we sang the song Amazing Grace. And a lot of you know and understand that John Newton penned that song after he had lost his family in, in, in this horrible ocean wreck. But some of you may not know. When that song was written in 1750 by John Newton, who basically was an Englishman who dedicated his life to the Lord for Christian ministry. He was dedicated to the Lord by his mother when he was born. You say, well, why do you bring that up? Well, Newton, John Newton, rebelled. He rebelled against his godly upbringing. At the age of 17, he went to sea. And soon he deserted ship and he was caught. He was imprisoned. He was punished severely. And when he was released at the age of 18, he became so bitter, he didn't want to have anything to do with God or Christ or anything. His friends thought it was so bad, at times they thought that he was going to lose his sanity because his life was so filled with sin, shame, and fear. 
at the tender age of 18. And he became involved in the, with the slave traders of Africa and they transported slaves to America. And one night at sea, during a violent storm, John Newton gave his heart to Christ. He became a captain of his own ship and his slave trading life continued for the next six years. Finally, he turned his whole life over to the Lord. He abandoned slave trading and he entered seminary. And in 1758, he was ordained as a minister, the Church of England, finally fulfilling the prayers of his beloved mother who dedicated him to the Lord at birth. And in 1807, he wrote his own epitaph. Here's what he said. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertarian, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy nearly 16 years at only in Bucks and 28 years in this church. He died December 21st, 1807 at the age of 82. That's the grace of God. That's someone who was broken over his sin, over his rebellious heart. This man today we see in the text was a man who was crippled not only physically, but he was crippled by the, the hatred, the fear, the rebellion, the sin that had occupied his life. And he met God when he realized that he could not save himself. See, somehow today we still think that, well, I just got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and somehow I'll, I'll, I'll straighten my act out. No, you won't. You can't save yourself. An amazing grace was John Newton's life story of God's grace extended to a sinner crippled by fear and shame. And here, as the giver of all good things, God gives before we can even articulate the request. He met him at his deepest need, the need of forgiveness. Do you ever talk to people who went through a horrible trial or tribulation, maybe a loss of a loved one, a death of a loved one, uh, some kind of physical ailment? Maybe they, they have cancer or something that just totally just racked their life and just shook them. And now you talk to them years after that. And these are people who either were Christians or they came to Christ as, as a, a result of their trial. And to a one, they, they all say, I can honestly say that I'm glad that this happened. I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't take it back for anything. Because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't grow deeper in my walk with Christ. Or maybe I would never have met Christ. See, the deepest need and the truest grief in the human life is not a physical one. When Jesus said, your sins are removed, he met that man's greatest need in a very profound way. And forgiveness of sins is the message of Christianity. People say, we well, shouldn't bring up sin as negative thinking. Well, I, I beg to disagree. It's the essential message of the gospel. If we don't talk about sin and the need to forgiveness, then we've, we've somehow prostituted the gospel. You have a little, I think, a chart there in your thing talks about the sinfulness of men. 
Just read through that. It, it, it transgresses the law. It defiles God's image in man. It rebels against God. It displays gross ingratitude toward God. These are all things that the Bible says about sin. It's incurable. It affects all men. For all of sin, it falls short of the glory of God. It's deep in the heart of man. It dominates the entire person. It, in other words, it perverts the mind, the will, the affections, the body. It brings men under the dominion of the devil. It brings man under the power of God's wrath. <clears throat> it subjects man to misery. It causes trouble, emptiness, forfeits peace. And ultimately, it dooms men into a godless hell forever. That's the results of sin. On the other side of that, you have the forgiveness of God. If sin so affects all men then the best news that you could ever give is that God forgives sin. And the paralytic here was living proof when Jesus said, your sins be forgiven you. I believe that the pain of Calvary just struck him in his heart. Christ always lived in the shadow of the cross. Why? Because he knew the cost. He knew what it was going to take. He must have tasted the agony of the cross throughout his life whenever he forgave sin. Because he knew that he would bear the punishment that he had removed from that helpless soul. That's why it's so important, even as believers. See, so many times today, we were talking about this Wednesday night in our Bible study. So many times today, when it comes to our Christian walk and it comes to the grace of God, and then when we sin... Hey, I'm covered. I got it covered. No problem. And I, I told him Wednesday night, I said, I wonder how easy it would be for us to sin if every time we sinned as a believer, we saw the bloodied body of Jesus Christ standing before us. And the Roman soldier bringing back the whip, lashing him one more time and ripping hunks of his flesh off his back. Every time we sin, that's what happens. Think of that. Because he paid the punishment for all of us. But somehow today in our theology, we think, well, when we sin, it's just all covered. It's no, no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to Christ who underwent that entire punishment. We need to remember. That's why the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Why? Just because he's having a good day? No, because Christ paid the price. Thirdly, third word there is fury. It says in verse 3, And behold, a certain of the scribes, along with some of the Pharisees, the other accounts tell us, they said within their own hearts, This man blasphemes. And Mark and Luke add to that, and they say that they even kind of reason within themselves, who can forgive uh, sin except God alone? So that's the perspective they were coming from. And this wasn't just a thought in their heart. This was an anger in their heart. There was fury there. Jesus forgave the crippled men. But all the scribes and the Pharisees concluded was, how can he do that? This is ridiculous. This guy's a blasphemer. They totally missed the point. 
See, that's what happens sometimes when we become familiar with the gospel message. We miss the point. This is probably not the first time these Pharisees and scribes heard Jesus teach. They've heard this before. But they acknowledged, they refused to acknowledge their own need for forgiveness. Because they were proud. They were religious. They were holding on to what they could bring to the table. Even today, when a message is preached on forgiveness, some will be convicted of their sin. Some will open their hearts to Christ. And unfortunately, others will leave uninterested, failing to recognize the problem of sin, and therefore they're unwilling to accept the, res- the solution of forgiveness. So instead of accepting the fact that Jesus could forgive sin and relieve the pressure of their guilt, his opponents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the uh, uh, Pharisees and the scribes here, realized that since only God could forgive sin, and they were right in that, only God can forgive sin, therefore Jesus was claiming to be God, therefore he was a blasphemer. To them, the ultimate blasphemy was to claim to be God by saying and doing things that only God could do. Well, that's what Christ did throughout his whole ministry. So these people were just going crazy. And they were angry. In Isaiah 43, 25, it says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. Only God can forgive sin. They got that part right. They were wrong about Christ because he is God. He showed the divine ability by demonstrating and reading their own thoughts. These guys didn't say anything. They were just standing there and Jesus just turns to them and says, Why do you have evil in your heart? Why do you think this? Can you imagine that? That would be a little intimidating. He was showing them his omniscience. He knew what was in the heart of the sick man. Therefore, he forgave him. He knew what was in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees because he's God. That's the only explanation. But the accusations against him don't just stop there with him being blasphemous in verse 3. They notch it up. And in verse 11, you can follow this. We're just going to go over this briefly. They even pointed out that he's immoral. They said, oh, look at him eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. In other words, if he runs with that crowd, he must be a bad guy. He's impious in verse 14. says... Then came to the disciple, him to the disciple of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but the disciples fast not? So they're accusing him of being irreligious. And ultimately, in verse 34, the Pharisees come and they, they accuse him of being satanic. They say that he casts out demons through the prince, through the power of the prince of demons. What a contrast. See, their fury was in light of their faith of the paralytic and the four who helped him. I mean, you think you'd go, wow, this is incredible. This guy is, this is amazing. No, it resulted in anger. And that's the way it is. Christ comes with a message of love, grace, and forgiveness. And for whatever reason, there are those who reject it. And there are those who rejoice in it. Fourth word, forensic, means argument. 
exactly what Jesus presents here. He, he didn't always defend his actions, but he did this time because he wanted to make sure that they didn't miss what was trying to be expressed here, this important truth. It says, in Jesus, knowing their thoughts, why do you think evil in your hearts? How do you know what was in their hearts if he isn't God? John 2.25 says that he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Anybody who knows people's thoughts must be God. 1 Samuel 16.7, the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Kings 8.39, you know the hearts of all the children of men. First Chronicles twenty eight nine, the Lord searches all the hearts. Jeremiah seventeen ten, I, the Lord search the heart. Ezekiel eleven five, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. That's right. God knows what you're thinking even now as you sit here this morning. Are you being receptive? Are you being rejective of what you're hearing? The truth that you're hearing. It's not my truth, it's God's truth. God knows everything. And Jesus knew the scribes and the Pharisees were thinking evil in their hearts, even to the extent of wanting to kill him later on. See, the evil heart is one that plots against God, trying to deceive God. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to deceive God in Acts 5. Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see other examples. But here he's, he's giving us basically two perspectives in verse 5. He says, let me ask you a question. Still, they're not saying anything. Okay, at this point, the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes haven't said a word. Finally, he asks them a question. Which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven or to say arise and walk? You say, well, okay, this is interesting. Kind of an interesting angle on the argument here. So he says, let's consider what would be easier. And he says, first of all, of just doing things. You notice that the scribes, the Pharisees couldn't give an answer. Because neither is easier. Both are impossible for men, but are possible for God only. And they couldn't truthfully say either one, let alone do them themselves. But Jesus could say both because he could do either. With the same divine ease, he did every other miracle. Only God can heal. Only God can forgive. The scribes and the Pharisees were the one who taught that diseases and sickness were a result of sin. And if they really thought about it, their own theology told them that the one who could heal diseases could forgive sin and vice versa. And so he said, which is easier, to forgive or to heal? He's putting them in a corner. If I can do one, then I can do the other. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm not a blasphemer. I'm God. And they were trapped because they knew that he could heal. They've seen him heal. And they knew that God was capable of both. If Jesus had power over disease and disasters and and demons and death, then he could certainly deal with sin. But you notice here, it says, which of the two miracles is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sin's forgiven or get up and walk? Well, obviously, we would say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how you know if they're forgiven, right? I mean, that's kind of common sense. 
I can't prove whether or not I accomplish the forgiveness of your sins. If I just, you come up to me and I say, oh, your sins are forgiven. How do you know they're forgiven? You don't know. But if someone rolls up the aisle in a wheelchair and I say, rise up and walk, and they don't, <laughs> I'm the fool, right? Well, it didn't work. Pretty clear. Therefore, the latter statement would be the more difficult to say. Get up and walk. See, and that's the reason Jesus' choice serves as direct proof of who he is in verse 6. He says, but you may, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Just so you know, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive the sins. And to prove it, he turns to the paralytic and says, rise up, take your bed, and get out of here. If all that Jesus said was your sins are forgiven, those watching would have never known that he actually did it. But when he said, rise up and walk, and by healing the paralytic, they would have to conclude that Jesus had forgiven his sins because they're linked inseparably. So Jesus was demonstrating his power, his healing power, as proof of his power to forgive sin. And that's the root of this guy's problem. It wasn't his physical problem. It was the root of his heart. Any pretender can claim to forgive sin. And there's people that do it all the time. But Jesus didn't want people to think that he was just like every other other person in that realm. And so he, he performed this miracle. Incredible miracle. Quickly, the fifth word for us says in verse 7, he arose and departed to his house. Can you imagine all these people are just stone silent? This guy breaks down. The, the roof, he's dropped at the foot of Jesus. Jesus forgives his sin. And then he turns to these religious leaders who are probably in the back of the room against the walls. And why do you think evil in your heart? What's easier to do? This or that? And he says, get up and walk. And he just says he arose and he departed to his house. (laughs) See you later. I'm out of here. The paralytic's four friends were probably still up on the roof looking down going, I can't believe this. Look at what just happened. They're probably jumping, hey, wait for us. You know, this guy's on his way to his house. They're running down the, the stairs trying to catch up to him in the street. Very dramatic scene, incredible. He read his opponent's hearts. And you could say he nailed them to the wall with his argument. And he simply said, get up and go home, fella. Immediately the guy rolled up a little bit under his arm and took off. led to the last word. Not only does Jesus have the power to heal this man's disease, but he had the power to forgive sin. He still does. But look at what it says in verse 8. It says, when the multitude saw it, they marveled. That word in the original Greek is phobia, fear. They were afraid. And it says they glorified God who had given such power unto men. See, the multitudes at this place knew that God was working through Jesus. 
They may not have understood the whole incarnation and everything that's involved in that, but, but they did know that God was there and that this guy just healed somebody and then he forgave his sin and then healed them. And it says that they were afraid. And you know what? We've seen this pattern throughout every miracle. After Christ does a miracle, it says the people marveled. They were afraid. It means a reverential awe. It's the kind of fear that someone feels in the presence of one who is infinitely superior. You see it when Jesus was walking on the water in Matthew 14. You see it when Jesus stilled the storm in in Mark 4. You see it as he healed the paralytic in Luke 5, as he raised the widow's son in Luke 7, as he healed the demoniacs in Luke 8. You see it as the angel of the Lord appeared beside the altar of Zacharias in Luke 1. Zacharias recovered his speech in Luke Luke 1. The angels sang to the shepherds in Luke 2. You see that fear when the angel rolled the stone away. The guards had that fear. The woman who discovered the empty tomb had that fear in Matthew 28. The people will be faced with a shattering events and they'll be filled with fear, the Bible says, in the last days. The people that saw the signs and wonders in the early church, they felt the power of God. And in Acts 2, they felt that fear. The people learned of the death of Ananias and Sapphira says that they felt that fear. The demons that overcame the Jewish exorcist at Ephesus felt that fear. In each Example, there's this reverential fear of God. And that's the kind of fear we should have in our hearts toward Christ. The Bible says in Acts 9.31 of the early church, it says that they walked in the fear of the Lord. Do we honestly feel that we fear the Lord, that we walk in the fear of the Lord today? Or we just go out and do our own business? Because it will show itself with a chaste life, according to 1 Peter 3, 2. It says, a chaste conduct coupled with fear. It will show itself in the holiness in which we live, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It will show itself in a true repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 says that fear is an element of true repentance. It will show itself out in a godly Christian life, Philippians 2. That we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. A love and respect and a mutual ministry one for another. It's a submission in the fear of God in Ephesians 5. Powerful evangelism in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And even discipline in the church, 1 Timothy 5.20, that the discipline must be done publicly, that others also may See, Christian behavior is to come out of a reverential fear of God. That's why the church is in such a mess today across the board. Because we have no fear of God anymore. God's just the man upstairs. He's our pal. He's our friend. He's all those things. And all those things may be true, but if we lose the aspect of God's holiness and we don't come to Him in fear, it doesn't mean anything. I hope this morning that you're in awe of Christ. I hope this morning that your heart is broken before a holy God. Because that's the heart that God will save. 
So Jesus' forgiveness of sin is the greatest message that we have to give. I pray and I hope this morning, beloved, that you've experienced that forgiveness. When the crowd departed, there were those who were forgiven. But there are also those who were furious. They've heard enough. They rejected the truth. Christ offers forgiveness. He blots out all the past. It doesn't matter what you've done from what you've come from. It makes no difference. He washes away all the sins, past, present, future. That's the greatest news that you'll ever hear is that forgiveness is available to you. It's available to you this morning in this fear, this phobos that we're talking about, this reverential awe of God is the foundation that all of our behavior should come out of. They glorified God. Rightly so, and so should we. But they did it because they feared God. They revered God. They were in awe of His presence. See, that's the right response. I hope, I trust this morning that you have such an awe in the presence of Christ that you know that your sins are forgiven. It's there for the asking when you come with a broken heart, when you come with a contrite heart. Christ offers us forgiveness. I pray this morning that you'll open your heart to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this miracle this morning that we've seen in Matthew chapter 9. There's a poet who wrote a a poem. It says, like a bird that trails a broken wing, I have come home to thee, home from a flight in freedom that was never meant for me. And I who have known far spaces in the fierce heat of the sun, ask only the shelter of thy wings now that the day is done. Like a bird that trails a broken wing, I have come home at last. Oh, hold me to thy heart once more and hide me from my past. That's what forgiveness is all about. That's what Christ offers you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're a bird with a broken wing, you want to be freed from your past, you desire to come near to the Lord, to have him hide you from your past, he'll do that. If you come with a broken, with a contrite spirit, like this man we saw this morning, he'll heal your heart. That's his promise. And someday he'll ultimately heal your body in the fullness of his kingdom. Father, we pray this morning that you will help us to forget what were the human elements of this message. Help us only to remember that which is from you. And Father, I pray that you'll draw even now to you, those who have yet to put their faith or trust in you. I pray that you'll convict them of their sin, that you will show them their need of a Savior. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. We pray that in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.